Welcome to Book Me. I'm Costas Halvrezos. Today, Marjorie Simmons, author of Some Beach Somewhere. When five East Coasters bought a colt at the prestigious Lexington Selected Yearling Sale in 2006, they never expected he would change the course of standard-bred racing history. But that's exactly what the pacer Some Beach Somewhere trained in Truro, Nova Scotia did. The beach, as he was known, matched and set world records with his blistering speed and attracted rock star receptions from fans at the biggest, richest races in Canada and the United States. As an acclaimed author who's been around horses most of her life, Marjorie Simmons was uniquely qualified to write Some Beach Somewhere, the harness racing legend from a one-horse stable. Marjorie, welcome to Book Me. I'm delighted to speak with you today, Costas. Now, I should have said you were around thoroughbred horses most of your life, the kind you put a saddle on to ride. But, <laughs> but Some Beach Somewhere was a standard bred, uh, the kind who pulls the driver on a two-wheeled sulky. When did you first start to hear about the horse his fans call Beach? Well, you know, I've got friends who are in the industry up in North Sydney and uh, also other friends who rode standard breads who'd been retired and, and absolutely adored them. So I was getting more and more conscious of the fact that in my own backyard, I had two tracks and not so far away, I had Truro. And uh, the breeches started getting more and more interesting to me. It was like every time I turned around, I was seeing standard breads. And then I realized um, that beach had passed and I grew you know, more and more aware of the fact that we'd lost the Secretariat of Harness Racing. Your book chronicles the very deep personal bonds that several humans developed with Some Beach Somewhere, beginning with his birth. Tell us about Stephanie Smith Rothog. Yes, well, one of the joys of this book for me was the interviews that I was able to do, um, and they were, I went all over the place. I was down to Harrisburg and, and um, to the auction there and did interviews there and so on. And Stephanie, of course, was Beach's breeder, and she had a very, very close relationship with Beach's mother very close relationship with this mare who was just very kind, very sensitive and, and very beautiful. So when Beach the Colt came along, she was already predisposed to, to really think he was something special. And he was from the absolute moment, you know, the four hooves came to the ground. So interviewing Stephanie was a, a great pleasure because she gave me information about how Beach came to the world and his attitude from, you know, as a very young colt. And from day one, he just had winner on everything about him. But also a, a very personable horse. He was, you know, I mean, stallions aren't always warm and fuzzy. In fact, they can, no, I mean, honest to goodness, they can be, you've got to respect them is what you have to do. Some of them can be terribly uh, aggressive and bitey and nippy and so on. Uh, I mean, Man of War and that whole line of up thoroughbreds, uh, the grooms cowered <laughs> in fear. Uh, and I'm not saying that's common, but nonetheless, they're not geldings. So Beach was just an amiable fellow. He was. Now, he was a wee bit nippy, but that was more his way of expressing himself. And you just had to <clears throat> keep your eyes uh, peeled, I guess. But no, he had a whole lifetime of very intense relationships with the people who were around him, particularly Brent McGrath and his family, and a you know, very intense relationship with his career driver, Paul McDonnell. This was a really amiable, nice, intelligent, playful horse. Well, Beach was born in Ohio, but tell us the story about how he ended up in Truro, Nova Scotia. 
Well, yes, that was all thanks to Brent McGrath, who, uh, of course, is Truro-based. He put together a group of people, six in total, called Schooner Stables, and they were all in accord that they would use the $40,000 they had together to buy a colt down uh, at Lexington, Kentucky, at the sales there. And, you know, I have to tell you that $40,000 is actually not a lot of money for a top-notch standard bred colt. It's, it's enough, you know, and they go for much more and they go for less, absolutely. But nobody had any expectation that the colt they were going to buy was going to change standard bread racing history. But Brent was a, a good judge of horse flesh, and he had grown up hanging around the barns, so to speak, in Truro. Yes, you know, at that point, Brent had had many years uh, in and around the industry. As a boy, he'd been in the barns and, and around some top, top trainers at Truro. And he had owned maritime breads for, for some years. What he wanted, he wanted to progress, you know. And, and so he wanted a, a Canadian bred horse that um, he could race in Ontario. Bigger stakes, uh, bigger money, and, and so on. So that was his goal. But again, you have no idea when you when you look at a beautiful horse in the in the auction ring, a beautiful young horse. You have no idea how they're going to develop, you know, but he looked at Beach and he saw something that perhaps other people didn't see, I don't know, but he connected with him on a very deep level and thought, I want that horse in my life. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say he fell in love with the Beach. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed uh, the part of the book where I was writing about after he had purchased uh, the colt. Now, uh, he, he ran back to the barn. He ran back so quickly that before the owner had, he even had time to tuck Peach away back in his stall, he was there. And, and he was peppering her with questions. And, you know, what does he eat? And what's he like? And, and what's his personality like? And, and, you know, of course, Stephanie, who absolutely adored Beach and was feeling pretty heartbroken that, that she had to part ways with him because this is what you do as a breeder, um, she was just delighted. And she was very surprised and, and, of course, was happy to answer all Brent's questions. Well, owning a horse and training a horse, those are two different roles. But what about finding a driver who could bring the best performance out of some beach somewhere? One of the wonderful things about the beach story is it's just completely magical. Every single aspect to it is sort of, um, how did that happen? Oh, my goodness. More stardust. You know, uh, Brent, as it turns out, would meet meet Paul McDonnell when they were very young, in their early, early 20s, when uh, Brent and his wife, Rhonda, had gone to work at uh, Greenwood track in Toronto and so the three met at that time and you know as people do around the same age they start to talking and and you know they there was mutual liking from the get-go Brent liked the way Paul brought the horses back the way he took them out of the barn if you know what I mean and Paul respected that uh, Rhonda and Brent were trying to you know really succeed at, at, at horse racing the three always got on so when Brent realized that he had something very, very special in Beach, there was really only one person he wanted to drive him, and that was Paul McDonnell. The cover photo on your book shows some beach somewhere pacing in a race, and all four hooves are <laughs> off the ground. He looks like Pegasus. He looks like he's flying. What, what did Paul McDonnell tell you about the experience of driving him compared to all the other horses he'd driven? 
Well, again, uh, Paul is one of the interviews in the book, and I was very, very happy to, to speak with Paul, who's a true gentleman in, in, in all senses, but uh, absolutely uh, regarded as such in his, his sport. And he told me wonderful stories. I mean, again, you know, there's, you're, when you're driving a horse, you're feeling him through your hands, and you're, and you're, you're listening, and you're, and you're watching, and, and you're, you're very, it's a very close, close connection, driver to horse. And so as such, Paul told me some stories about you know the one race 20 of 21 races that beach uh, wins and the one race that he lost which is considered the finest race any horse ever did i mean just absolutely astonishing the effort he put out and during that race he could feel paul Mark McDonnell could feel in his hands in you know in his whole system that beach was struggling and that frightened Paul McTonnell because when horses are struggling, bad things can happen. But you're committed. I mean, you're in the last, absolute last bit of the race. You can't all of a sudden say, oh, it's okay, fella, you can slow down. I mean, they were both, Beach was as committed as Paul. And uh, nonetheless, Paul being the incredibly sensitive driver he was, was worried. He thought, oh my gosh, this horse is giving everything and more that a horse can give. And he lost by the slimmest, slimmest, slimmest of margins. So um, all sorts of wonderful stories from Paul about his driving career with Beach. Now, the curious thing is, uh, there was a sentiment at the time, that harness racing, the Maritimes, was kind of losing its cachet. Uh, Younger people and sports writers were more interested in sports they could watch on TV, and horse racing was no longer the only legal form of gambling either. But when some beach somewhere burst on the scene, you suddenly had this phenomenon of beach parties. Tell us about those. (laughs) Yes, apparently this was uh, one of the uh, the clerks at, at uh, Truro Raceway who came up with this idea that, uh, hey, you know, the horse is named some beach somewhere. Why don't we have a beach party every time he's on the track? Because people came out in droves, you know. I mean, it's a bit like when a Wayne Gretzky comes along or, uh, you know, some big star in some sport. All of a sudden that sport gets a whole lot more uh, interesting. People are are coming out to the games and so on and you know superstars don't come along very often and um who knew that beach was going to be a horse not just of a generation but of a, of a century of, of a lifetime you know so yeah all of a sudden people are pouring out to see him at Truro and cheer him on and he's the homeboy he's our boy even in the states you know when they realize that uh, i mean everyone every sports man and woman respects genius and respects that kind of talent it's exciting you know you're not going to see it again for years and years you want to be there you want to be the one you know eyes glued to the race right so yeah harness racing or thoroughbred racing or whatever it might be we're always looking for the next star who's going to absolutely dazzle us so beach absolutely did that beach essentially had a two-year career uh, as a two-year-old a three-year-old he was only defeated that once a lot of people were swept up in the excitement so it was interesting to read your interviews with people who had Let's say a more dispassionate view, and one was a member of the syndicate that owned Beach, Pam Dean. What did you learn from her? Well, Pam, of course, uh, was new to the harness racing scene in terms of being a horse owner or a co-owner, and she had her own equestrian interests uh, in Western riding, so she owns quarter horses and shows them and so on. But she brought, you know, her horsewoman's eyes to the scene, and she was so impressed with how mature the young Beach was, even his first times on the track. He just came out, looked around, and said, okay, let's get this job done. (laughs) So it was very, very interesting because she had a key 
seen Horsewoman's Eye, but not necessarily had spent that much time at the track. But she was very impressed from, with him uh, from, from the get-go. And she said he, he ran differently from other standard breads who tend to kind of pull themselves along with the front hooves. Yeah, that was interesting. That was an interesting comment. And basically what it underscored for me is that Brent had always said Beach had a near flawless gait. That's a pretty amazing phrase when you think about it. You train horses to develop the, the you know, a strong, uh, consistent gait and, and so on, especially with pacing, because it's not actually, it, it is a man-made gait, you know, although they can actually be born pacing after enough generations. But uh, at any rate, if you're, if you're born with that extra bit of, of genius, as, as, as Beach was, I mean, it didn't take him long at all. He went, oh, is this what you want? Okay, move aside. Here I come. <laughs> and that was that and that's really interesting when you watch some of those races and you see how he comes down the track there's no hesitation there's no awkwardness there's no anything except just pure horsepower another person you spoke with who was something of a skeptic for a while was the sports journalist dave briggs uh (laughs) he wasn't completely buying into the hype after beach's uh extraordinary campaign as a two-year-old what insights did you get from him was very interesting for me because I didn't realize how often sports writers or sports owners or breeders and so on might sit on the fence in terms of an opinion on a horse in their first year of racing. It's the second year when they, you know, the the glamour boys, as they call them, one of the chapters, which I absolutely adored. I loved the horse lingo in in this particular horse world, by the way. Uh, At any rate, so the glamour boys, which of course includes the uh, the fillies as well, come out in that second year of racing. And that's when people start to take real notice. And that's exactly what happened with Dave Briggs, who, poor thing, had to chew his words pretty uh, quickly. Just because a colt or filly has had a, an extraordinary first year really doesn't mean a lot. I mean, it, it does. You have higher expectations than perhaps others, but it's a horse race. You don't know how that second year is going to develop. And Beach just got stronger and bigger and faster. Your subtitle to the book mentions a one-horse stable, and Dave Briggs had something to say about that and how it <laughs> how unusual that was. It absolutely is. You know, uh, I mean. Brent McGrath put his life on hold and and was fortunate that he could do so because he was good friends with Gary Pye, who was a friend and co-owner as well. And And Brent Brent was working managing an automobile dealership. Yes, he he and Gary worked together. It was uh, Gary's uh, dealership to begin with. um, Brent came to work with him, and eventually they um, uh, co-owned dealerships together. So very, very strong friendship and business relationship and all the rest of it. So when Brent said to Gary, Gary, uh, we have an extraordinary horse, and I I have to take a year's leave, and I have to train this horse myself, (laughs) Gary said to his huge credit, okay, go make us some money, bye. (laughs) And uh, so that's what happened. But, um, you know, ordinarily in in the horsey world, a a one horse barn, (laughs) it's unheard of. Uh, You know, there could be 10, 20, 30, 40, depending, of course, on how how deep the pockets of the owner uh, they are. But, you know, even your regular fellow or lady is going to have four, five, six horses because, you know, how else are you ever going to make money? How can you pin all your hopes on one horse and expect it to change the world for you? This is where the magic comes in again, is Brent was convinced from day one, not necessarily that Beach was going to win every race he went in or anything like that, but he was convinced he had an extraordinary animal and he wanted to give him every opportunity to excel. 
And he ended up making about $3 million, this $40,000 horse. Well, you know, that was just the tiny, tiny tip of the iceberg. By the time he went into syndication as a, as a stallion, holy dinah, that was when the money started to roll in. I mean, we're talking $30,000, uh, what do they call it, a, a straw of uh, semen. And Beach was a busy boy for many years, so um, you can do the math. You love horses. This comes through very clearly, and you've written uh, about thoroughbreds and quarter horses that you've ridden, and, and they're different personalities. What was it like as a writer to hear all these people talk about this extraordinary standard bread? I knew I had to speak to the people who knew and loved him best because, to my sadness, I didn't get to meet Beach. And, you know, I have had the great privilege and pleasure of wonderful friendships uh, with horses over the years. Just just extraordinary friendships, horses that would do anything you asked in, in the best kind of way, brave solid honest so i knew to get a really clear picture of what beach was all about i had to go to the people who loved him best and so i tried to do that and you know starting out with um again his breeder stephanie smith rothog who gave me an extraordinary interview and you know the whole um Brent's whole family was just amazing. I mean, without Rhonda's, she gave me an entire bag of uh, magazines and clippings and photographs and so on. So I just poured over those. And basically, she was my research assistant, God bless her, uh, brought me this huge bag of, of materials and said, you know, have at her. Without that, I would have been lost. But I wanted each to be real. I wanted him, you know, for any reader picking up that book, they knew that he liked to play with a ball, for God's sakes. And so he's obviously kind of a playful goof in, in a nice way, you know. But he's also, um, I loved there was a comment by Joanne Colville of the Ontario Standard Bread Adoption Society. That was a wonderful interview, too. Uh, and she said, you know, there was a menacing way about Beach. She said, I wouldn't have wanted to go against him. And I absolutely adored that uh, comment because, you know, when a serious athlete comes on the field, you know, uh, or racetrack in this case, they've got your attention. There is a bit of menace about them. They're like, out of my way, I'm coming through. (laughs) And, you know, they're serious. And and so I wanted to bring all those aspects of his personality to, to life in the book. And I guess as an accompaniment to the book, people should go to YouTube and pop in uh, some beach somewhere and see some of those races, and they'll know what you were talking about. Absolutely. I must have watched some of them, you know, 10 and 20 times over because I, I wanted to get each detail of each race and so on. Uh, and uh, I also borrowed, God bless them, the, the uh, announcer's words as, as public record words to, to really bring those races to life. Well, you can't uh, capture the excitement, which took over the, uh, the announcers in some of those races as well, some beach somewhere came down the stretch to the finish line. Know, uh, some of them are like, you know, hockey announcers on steroids. They're just like wild and, and, and wild and crazy. But what I really loved about it was that there's particular language that comes with any sport. And, you know, in the horse world, there's so many different languages. It, it's a bit dizzying. But when you hear those announcers call a race, the language is amazing. The verbs are just like <laughs> roaring along. And, and you know, I, I counted up how many different ways you could, you know, make a horse roar, bullet, this, that, that all these different incredible verbs, you know. And, and, of course, you don't want to say the same one, you know, blazed, okay? Can only use that once. Yep. Right, next time it's something else. I thought, you know, I can't do this better than people who have done this all their life. And, you know, I mean, announcers are revered. These, these are very special group. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to borrow from their language because this, uh, this is top notch. 
Marjorie, thank you very much for telling us about your relationship with uh, the story of Some Beach Somewhere. I'm delighted to speak with you. Thank you so much and uh, all the best. Marjorie Simmons, the author of Some Beach Somewhere, the harness racing legend from a one-horse stable. It's published by Nimbus. 52 and 4, 52 and 4, the half-mile time for Some Beach Somewhere. And he is rolling along as they head out of the far turn. And Some Beach Somewhere is drawing away. He's opened up now to a four-length lead with less than three-eighths to go. Racing in second is Blue Claw. Then further back to Riggins in third as they circle the far turn at Some Beach Somewhere for Paul McDonnell. Now on top with a five-length lead. Some Beach Somewhere through three quarters. One, nineteen, and two. He has a big shot at it as they come to the top of the stretch. It's all some beat somewhere, and he's drawn clear to a six-length lead with an eighth of a mile to go. Mystery chase on the outside of second. Blue Claws racing in third. Some beat somewhere, a 16th from the finish. Mystery chase a distant second. It's some beat somewhere. He is heading down to the wire. Some beat somewhere. Maxinell pushes him home. 146 and four, equaling the world record. Well, was that exciting enough for you? If you'd like to comment on today's podcast with Marjorie Simmons, our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. We have dozens more conversations for you with people who create books in Atlantic Canada, authors, illustrators, editors, and designers, all on bookmepodcast.ca. Pass the word to fellow readers. On Instagram, get an alert every time we post a new interview. Just follow at bookmepodcast. If you're in the Lunenburg County area, listen to one of our podcasts any evening on the nonprofit radio station CHLU 93.7 FM just before sign off around 9 o'clock. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing. The digital driver who cracks the whip on the bits and bytes of our social media is Laura Hines. I'm Costas Halabrezos. Now, giddy up, let's go read. <laughs>